Part First, Chapter Six of Nostromo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris DaCosta. Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. Part First: The Silver of the Mine, Chapter Six, Part One. At that time. Nostromo had been already long enough in the country to raise to the highest pitch Captain Mitchell's opinion of the extraordinary value of his discovery. Clearly he was one of those invaluable subordinates whom to possess is a legitimate cause of boasting. Captain Mitchell plumed himself upon his eye for men, but he was not selfish, and in the innocence of his pride was already developing that mania for lending you, my capitaz de cargadores, which was to bring Nostromo into personal contact sooner or later, with every European in Sulaco, as a sort of universal factotum, a prodigy of efficiency in his own sphere of life. The fellow is devoted to me, body and soul, Captain Mitchell was given to affirm, and though nobody, perhaps, could have explained why it should be so, it was impossible on a survey of their relation to throw doubt on that statement, unless, indeed, one were a bitter, eccentric character like Dr. Monaghan for instance, whose short, hopeless laugh expressed somehow an immense mistrust of mankind. Not that Dr. Monaghan was a prodigal either of laughter or of words. He was bitterly taciturn when at his best. At his worst people feared the open scornfulness of his tongue. Only Mrs. Gould could keep his unbelief in men's motives within due bounds. But even to her, on an occasion not connected with Nostromo, and in a tone which for him was gentle, even to her, he had said once, Really, it is most unreasonable to demand that a man should think of other people so much better than he is able to think of himself. And Mrs. Gould had hastened to drop the subject. There were strange rumors of the English doctor. Years ago, in the time of Guzman Bento, he had been mixed up, it was whispered, in a conspiracy which was betrayed and, as people expressed it, drowned in blood. His hair had turned gray. His hairless, seamed face was of a brick-dust color. The large check pattern of his flannel shirt and his old stained Panama hat were an established defiance to the conventionalities of Sulaco. Had it not been for the immaculate cleanliness of his apparel, he might have been taken for one of those shiftless Europeans that are a moral eyesore to the respectability of a foreign colony in almost every exotic part of the world. The young ladies of Sulaco, adorning with clusters of pretty faces the balconies along the street of the Constitution, when they saw him pass, with his limping gait and bowed head, a short linen jacket drawn on carelessly over the flannel check shirt, would remark to each other, Here is the senor doctor, going to call on Donna Emilia. He has got his little coat on. The inference was true. Its deeper meaning was hidden from their simple intelligence. Moreover, they expected no store of thought on the doctor. He was old, ugly, learned, and a little loco, mad, if not a bit of a sorcerer, as the common people suspected him of being. The little white jacket was in reality a concession to Mrs. Gould's humanizing influence. The doctor, with his habit of skeptical, bitter speech, had no other means of showing his profound respect for the character of the woman who was known in the country as the English Signora. He presented this tribute very seriously indeed, 
It was no trifle for a man of his habits. Mrs. Gould felt that, too, perfectly. She would never have thought of imposing upon him this marked show of deference. She kept her old Spanish house, one of the finest specimens in Sulaco, open for the dispensation of the small graces of existence. She dispensed with them simplicity and charm, because she was guided by an alert perception of values. She was highly gifted in the art of human intercourse, which consists in delicate shades of self-forgetfulness and in the suggestion of universal comprehension. Charles Gould, the Gould family, established in Costaguana for three generations, always went to England for their education and for their wives. Imagine that he had fallen in love with a girl's sound common sense like any other man. But these were not exactly the reasons why, for instance, the whole surveying camp, from the youngest of the men to their mature chief, should have found occasion to allude to Mrs. Gould's house so frequently, amongst the highest peaks of the Sierra. She would have protested that she had done nothing for them. With a low laugh and a surprised widening of her gray eyes, had anybody told her how convincingly she was remembered on the edge of the snow line above Sulaco. But directly, with a little capable air of setting her wits to work, she would have found an explanation. Of course, it was such a surprise for these boys to find any sort of welcome here, and I suppose they are homesick. I suppose everybody must be always just a little homesick. She was always sorry for homesick people. Born in the country, as his father before him, spare and tall, with a flaming mustache, a neat chin, clear blue eyes, auburn hair, and a thin, fresh red face, Charles Gould looked like a new arrival from over the sea. His grandfather had fought in the cause of independence under Bolivar, in that famous English legion which on the battlefield of Carabobo had been saluted by the great liberator as saviors of his country. One of Charles Gould's uncles had been elected president of that very province of Sulaco, then called a state, in the days of federation, and afterwards had been put up against the wall of a church and shot by the order of the barbarous Unionist general Guzman Bento. It was the same Guzman Bento who, becoming later perpetual president, famed for his ruthless and cruel tyranny, readied his apotheosis in the popular legend of a sanguinary land-haunting specter, whose body had been carried off by the devil in person from the brick mausoleum in the nave of the Church of Assumption in Santa Marta. Thus, at least, the priest explained its disappearance to the barefooted multitude that streamed in, awestruck, to gaze at the hole in the side of the ugly box of bricks before the great altar. Guzman Bento, of cruel memory, had put to death great numbers of people besides Charles Gould's uncle. But with a relative martyred in the cause of aristocracy, the Sulaco oligarchs, this was the phraseology of Guzman Bento's time, now they were called Blancos, and had given up the federal idea, which meant the families of pure Spanish descent considered Charles as one of themselves. With such a family record, no one could have been more of a costaguanero than Don Carlos Gould. But his aspect was so characteristic that in the talk of common people he was just the Inglés, the Englishman of Sulaco. He looked more English than a casual tourist, a sort of heretic pilgrim, quite unknown in Sulaco. He looked more English than the last-arrived batch of young railway engineers, than anybody out of the hunting field pictures in the numbers of punch reaching his wife's drawing-room two months or so after date. It astonished you to hear him talk Spanish, Castilian, as the natives say, 
or the Indian dialect of the country people so naturally. His accent had never been English, but there was something so indelible in all these ancestral ghouls, liberators, explorers, coffee planters, merchants, revolutionists, of Costaguana that he, the only representative of the third generation in a continent possessing its own style of horsemanship, went on looking thoroughly English, even on horseback. This is not said of him in the mocking spirit of the Laneros, men of the Great Plains, who think that no one in the world knows how to sit a horse but themselves. Charles Gould, to use the suitably lofty phrase, rode like a centaur. Riding for him was not a special form of exercise. It was a natural faculty, as walking straight is to all men's sound of mind and limb. But, all the same, when cantering beside the ruddy ox-cart track to the mine, he looked in his English clothes and with his imported saddlery, as though he had come this moment to Costaguana at his easy swift Pasatrote, straight out of some green meadow at the other side of the world. His way would lie along the old Spanish road, the Camino Real of popular speech, the only remaining vestige of a fact and name left by that royalty old Giorgio Viola hated, and whose very shadow had departed from the land. For the big equestrian statue of Charles IV at the entrance of the Alameda, towering white against the trees, was only known to the folk from the country and to the beggars of the town that slept on the steps or on the pedestal as the horse of stone. The other Carlos, turning off to the left with a rapid clatter of hoofs on the disjointed pavement, Don Carlos Gould, in his English clothes, looked as incongruous, but much more at home than the kingly cavalier reigning in his steed on the pedestal above the sleeping leperos, with his marble arm raised towards the marble rim of a plumed hat. The weather-stained effigy of the mounted king, with its vague suggestion of a saluting gesture, seemed to present an inscrutable breast to the political changes which had robbed it of its very name. But neither did the other horsemen, well known to the people, keen and alive on his well-shaped, slate-colored beast with a white eye, wear his heart on the sleeve of his English coat. His mind preserved its steady poise as if sheltered in the passionless stability of private and public decencies at home in Europe. He accepted with a like calm the shocking manner in which the Sulaco ladies smothered their faces with pearl powder till they looked like white plaster casts with beautiful living eyes, the peculiar gossip of the town, and the continuous political changes, the constant saving of the country, which to his wife seemed a puerile and bloodthirsty game of murder and rapine, played with terrible earnestness by depraved children. In the early days of her Costaguana life, the little lady used to clench her hands with exasperation at not being able to take the public affairs of the country as seriously as the incidental atrocity of methods deserved. She saw in them a comedy of naive pretenses, but hardly anything genuine except her own appalled indignation. Charles, very quiet and twisting his long moustaches, would decline to discuss them at all. Once, however, he observed to her gently, My dear, you seem to forget that I was born here. These few words made her pause as if they had been a sudden revelation. Perhaps the mere fact of being born in the country did make a difference. She had a great confidence in her husband. It had always been very great. He had struck her imagination from the first by his unsentimentalism, by that very quietude of mind which she had erected in her thought for a sign of perfect competency in the business of living. Don José Avellanos, their neighbor across the street, 
a statesman, a poet, a man of culture, who had represented his country at several European courts, and had suffered untold indignities as a state prisoner in the time of the tyrant Guzman Bento, used to declare in Donna Emilia's drawing-room that Carlos had all the English qualities of character with a truly patriotic heart. Mrs. Gould, raising her eyes to her husband's thin, red and tan face, could not detect the slightest quiver of a feature at what he must have heard said of his patriotism. Perhaps he had just dismounted on his return from the mine. He was English enough to disregard the hottest hours of the day. Basilio, in a livery of white linen and a red sash, had squatted for a moment behind his heels to unstrap the heavy, blunt spurs in the patio, and then the signor administrator would go up the staircase into the gallery. Rows of plants in pots, ranged on the balustrade between the pilasters of the arches, screened the corridor with their leaves and flowers from the quadrangle below, whose paved space is the true hearthstone of a South American house, where the quiet hours of domestic life are marked by the shifting of light and shadow on the flagstones. Senor Avellanos was in the habit of crossing the patio at five o'clock almost every day. Don Jose chose to come over at tea-time because the English rite at Donna Emilia's house reminded him of the time he lived in London as minister plenipotentiary to the court of St. James. He did not like tea, and, usually, rocking his American chair, his neat little shiny boots crossed on the footrest, he would talk on and on, with a sort of complacent virtuosity wonderful in a man of his age, while he held the cup in his hands for a long time. His close-cropped head was perfectly white, his eyes coal-black. On seeing Charles Gould step into the sala, he would nod provisionally and go on to the end of the oratorial period. Only then, he would say, Carlos, my friend, you have ridden from San Tome in the heat of the day, always the true English activity, no? What? He drank up all the tea at once in one draught. This performance was invariably followed by a slight shudder and a low, involuntary burr, which was not covered by the hasty exclamation, Excellent! Then, giving up the empty cup into his young friend's hand, extended with a smile, he continued to expatiate upon the patriotic nature of the San Tome mine, for the simple pleasure of talking fluently, it seemed, while his reclining body jerked backwards and forwards in a rocking chair of the sort exported from the United States. The ceiling of the largest drawing room of the Casa Gould extended its white level far above his head. The loftiness dwarfed the mixture of heavy, straight-backed Spanish chairs of brown wood with leathern seats, and European furniture, low and cushioned all over, like squat little monsters gorged to bursting with steel springs and horsehair. There were knick-knacks on little tables, mirrors led into the wall above marble consoles, square spaces of carpet under the two groups of armchairs, each presided over by a deep sofa, smaller rugs scattered all over the floor of red tiles, three windows from the ceiling down to the ground, opening on a balcony, and flanked by the perpendicular folds of the dark hangings. The stateliness of ancient days lingered between the four high, smooth walls, tinted a delicate primrose color, and Mrs. Gould, with her little head and shining coils of hair, sitting in a cloud of muslin and lace before a slender mahogany table, resembled a fairy posed lightly before dainty filters dispensed out of vessels of silver and porcelain. Mrs. Gould knew the history of the San Tome mine. 
worked in the early days mostly by means of lashes on the backs of slaves. Its yield had been paid for in its own weight of human bones. Whole tribes of Indians had perished in the exploitation, and then the mine was abandoned, since with this primitive method it had ceased to make a profitable return, no matter how many corpses were thrown into its maw. Then it became forgotten. It was rediscovered after the War of Independence. An English company obtained the right to work it, and found so rich a vein that neither the exactions of successive governments, nor the periodical raids of recruiting officers upon the population of paid miners they had created, could discourage their perseverance. But in the end, during the long turmoil of pronunciamentos that followed the death of the famous Guzman Bento, the native miners, incited to revolt by the emissaries sent out from the capital, had risen upon their English chiefs and murdered them to a man. The decree of confiscation which appeared immediately afterwards in the Diario Oficial, published in Santa Marta, began with the words, Justly incensed at the grinding oppression of foreigners, actuated by sordid motives of gain, rather than by love for a country where they come impoverished to seek their fortunes, the mining population of San Tome, etc., and ended with the declaration, The chief of the state has resolved to exercise to the full of his power of clemency, the mine, which by every law, international, human, and divine, reverts now to the government as national property, shall remain closed till the sword drawn for the sacred defense of liberal principles has accomplished its mission of securing the happiness of our beloved country. And for many years this was the last of the San Tome mine. What advantage that government had expected from the spoliation, it is impossible to tell now. Costaguana was made with difficulty, to pay a beggarly money compensation to the families of the victims, and then the matter was dropped out of diplomatic dispatches. But afterwards, another government bethought itself of that valuable asset. It was an ordinary Costaguana government, the fourth in six years, but it judged of its opportunities sanely. It remembered the San Tome mine with a secret conviction of its worthlessness in their own hands, but with an ingenious insight into the various uses a silver mine can be put to, apart from the sordid process of extracting the metal from under the ground. The father of Charles Gould, for a long time one of the most wealthy merchants of Costaguana, had already lost a considerable part of his fortune in forced loans to the successive governments. He was a man of calm judgment, who never dreamed of pressing his claims, and when, suddenly, the perpetual concession of the San Tome mine was offered to him in full settlement, his alarm became extreme. He was versed in the ways of governments. Indeed, the intention of this affair, though no doubt deeply meditated in the closet, lay open on the surface of the document presented urgently for his signature. The third and most important clause stipulated that the concession holder should pay at once to the government five years' royalties on the estimated output of the mine. Mr. Gould, Sr., defended himself from this fatal favor with many arguments and entreaties, but without success. He knew nothing of mining. He had no means to put his concession on the European market. The mine as a working concern did not exist. The buildings had been burnt down. The mining plant had been destroyed. The mining population had disappeared from the neighborhood years and years ago. The very road had vanished under a flood of tropical vegetation as effectually as if swallowed by the sea. And the main gallery had fallen in within a hundred yards from the entrance. It was no longer an abandoned mine. It was a wild, inaccessible, and rocky gorge of the Sierra, where vestiges of charred timber, 
some heaps of smashed bricks, and a few shapeless pieces of rusty iron could have been found under the matted mass of thorny creepers covering the ground. Mr. Gould, Sr., did not desire the perpetual possession of that desolate locality. In fact, the mere vision of it arising before his mind in the still watches of the night had the power to exasperate him into hours of hot and agitated insomnia. It so happened, however, that the finance minister of the time was a man to whom, in years gone by, Mr. Gould had, unfortunately, declined to grant some small pecuniary assistance, basing his refusal on the ground that the applicant was a notorious gambler and cheat, besides being more than half suspected of a robbery with violence on a wealthy ranchero in a remote country district, where he was actually exercising the function of a judge. Now after reaching his exalted position, that politician had proclaimed his intention to repay evil with good to Signor Gould, the poor man. He affirmed and reaffirmed this resolution in the drawing-rooms of Santa Marta, in a soft and implacable voice, and with such malicious glances that Mr. Gould's best friends advised him earnestly to attempt no bribery to get the matter dropped. It would have been useless. Indeed, it would not have been a very safe proceeding. Such was also the opinion of a stout, loud-voiced lady of French extraction, the daughter, she said, of an officer of high rank, officier supérieur de l'armée, who was accommodated with lodgings within the walls of a secularized convent next door to the Ministry of Finance. That florid person, when approached on behalf of Mr. Gould in a proper manner, and with a suitable present, shook her head despondently. She was good-natured, and her despondency was genuine. She imagined she could not take money in consideration of something she could not accomplish. The friend of Mr. Gould, charged with the delicate mission, used to say afterwards that she was the only honest person closely or remotely connected with the government he had ever met. No go, she had said with a cavalier, husky intonation, which was natural to her, and using turns of expression more suitable to a child of parents unknown than to the orphan daughter of a general officer. No, it's no go. Pas moyen, mon garçon. C'est dommage, tout de même. Ah zut, je ne vole pas mon monde. Je ne suis pas ministre, moi. Vous pouvez emporter votre petit sac. For a moment, biting her carmine lip, she deplored inwardly the tyranny of the rigid principles governing the sale of her influence in high places. Then, significantly, and with a touch of impatience, Allez, she added, et dites bien à votre bonhomme, entendez-vous, qu'il faut avaler la pilule. After such a warning, there was nothing for it but to sign and pay. Mr. Gould had swallowed the pill, and it was as though it had been compounded of some subtle poison that acted directly on his brain. He became at once mind-ridden, and as he was well-read in light literature, it took to his mind the form of the old man of the sea fastened upon his shoulders. He also began to dream of vampires. Mr. Gould exaggerated to himself the disadvantages of his new position, because he viewed it emotionally. His position in Costaguana was no worse than before. But man is a desperately conservative creature, and the extravagant novelty of this outrage upon his purse distressed his sensibilities. Everybody around him was being robbed by the grotesque and murderous bands that played their game of governments and revolutions after the death of Guzman Bento. His experience had taught him that, however short the plunder might fall of their legitimate expectations, 
no gang in possession of the presidential palace would be so incompetent as to suffer itself to be baffled by the want of a pretext. The first casual colonel of the barefooted army of scarecrows that came along was able to expose with force and precision to any mere civilian his titles to a sum of ten thousand dollars, the while his hope would be immutably fixed upon a gratuity, at any rate, of no less than a thousand. Mr. Gould knew that very well, and, armed with resignation, had waited for better times. But to be robbed under the forms of legality and business was intolerable to his imagination. Mr. Gould, the father, had one fault in his sagacious and honorable character. He attached too much importance to form. It is a failing common to mankind, whose views are tinged by prejudices. There was for him in that affair a malignancy of perverted justice which, by means of a moral shock, attacked his vigorous physique. It will end by killing me, he used to affirm many times a day. And, in fact, since that time, he began to suffer from fever, from liver pains, and mostly from a worrying inability to think of anything else. The finance minister could have formed no conception of the profound subtlety of his revenge. Even Mr. Gould's letters to his fourteen-year-old boy Charles, then away in England for his education, came at last to talk of practically nothing but the mine. He groaned over the injustice, the persecution, the outrage of that mine. He occupied whole pages in the exposition of the fatal consequences attaching to the possession of that mine from every point of view, with every dismal inference, with words of horror at the apparently eternal character of that curse. For the concession had been granted to him and his descendants forever. He implored his son never to return to Costaguana, never to claim any part of his inheritance there, because it was tainted by the infamous concession, never to touch it, never to approach it, to forget that America existed and pursue a mercantile career in Europe. And each letter ended with bitter self-reproaches for having stayed too long in that cavern of thieves, intriguers, and brigands. End of Part First, Chapter Six, Part One Recording by Chris DaCosta, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada